Bill Buck, and I've been asked by Arthur to introduce this panel, which I'm happy to do. I tried to think about some reason why Arthur would want me to do this. Um, I'll try to figure out a relevant connection here. Um, in 1982, when the price of oil was about where it is today, I was a brand new infantry lieutenant in Alaska and part of an airborne company whose mission was to jump in and secure various pump stations along the pipeline. And uh, that was in the event that there wasn't a World War III, which there had been a, been a World War III, we'd have jumped into Norway instead and secured airheads so we could interdict the Russians as they tried, or the Soviets as they tried to move out into the Atlantic. In any case, also in that period of my time uh, in Alaska, I had the opportunity to be an exchange officer with the 25th Infantry Regiment in Japan in Hokkaido when the Russians had a motorized rifle regiment in the Kuril Islands ready to spring across the water. So that's my connection to energy. I'm an aerospace engineer. So um, coming to this conversation today, uh, I, I looked at Asia and I tried to think to myself, okay, so we have China, we have Japan, we have South Korea, we have India, all buyers, big buyers of gas and oil. And then I tried to look at the unconventional resources that were potentially available to those countries. And of course, China has more than the United States does, almost twice as much. And countries like India and uh, uh, Pakistan have about a tenth as much, but the rest of the the community in that part of the world, excepting Australia, which you know is its own continent, is really um, deficient. And so, what would China do? Is the question. And then, in the advent of the latest, the 13th five-year plan, we can only wonder uh, what they'll do given their, let's say, lack of performance in future or past five-year plans. So we'll see what happens. Uh, the Chinese certainly have a trade surplus that has not only been um, created by their uh, successful uh, economic empowerment of their masses, but also by the fact that the commodities that they're trying to buy cost considerably less than they did a few years ago. So they, they had the largest trade surplus that's ever been recorded by any a country in the history of the world last year. So it's, it's fair to speculate that they might do some interesting things, although this is the purpose of why we're here to listen to Arthur and Anne. So with that, let me just say that um, one can only be hopeful that somehow we break uh, the gridlock of our not only pricing that we get for oil and gas, but also the pricing that we have in the transportation fuel business, um, which is pretty much run by the things that we're here talking about today. So if there's a way to do that, um, that would be a great thing, and that would certainly be a ge geopolitical outcome that we would like to talk about in the years to come. Uh, with that in mind, I have to say a little bit about Arthur and Ann. I'll talk about Arthur first, even though he's going to speak second. He's a bit of a historian. You probably know he's written a few books. Uh, not the least of which is the duality, the study of the duality between the philosophy of Plato and the logic of Aristotle and how that applies to Western civilization. And energy. And energy. 
and a book about Napoleon and MacArthur and something about Gandhi and Winston Churchill. And it's amazing to me that you've been able to string together this list of historical books, the World War II, Business Success of America, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's good. Because in a country where the narrative is often written by Hollywood, it's nice to have somebody who actually studied the subject, right? Um, and of course, when uh, Arthur writes the book about this topic that we're talking about today in the not-too-distant future, I hope, one of the people that he will be talking about undoubtedly is Anne. So Anne is uh, uh, known for her incredible ability to remember facts and figures and string those together in a way that actually makes sense and sounds good. And so I'm excited myself to hear what both of these people have to say today. So with that, I will leave you uh, to the conversation and be back for questions. Sounds good. Well, I'm going to start. I'm actually going to be very light on facts and figures and try to give you more color um, today, because we've heard a lot of facts and figures earlier. And I'm actually going to start outside of Asia and then, and then go to Asia, um, partly in reaction to some of the earlier panels today. I think when we talk about the oil market, there's a factor that we always have to keep in mind, which is, unlike First of all, oil, of course, is a strategic commodity because it has a virtual monopoly over transportation fuel. But unlike many, many other um, commodities that are tremendously important, and oil is by far the most important one on the world stage today in terms of its impact on geopolitics and so forth, the pricing of oil is not just up to market forces. And I'm not even talking about cartel and issue like that. I just want you to imagine a scenario in which the proxy war currently going on between Iran and Saudi in Yemen, this Sunni Shia conflagration, doesn't keep itself to the kind of staid uh, status of a proxy war, but blows up even further than anybody could imagine today. Obviously, that would have a huge impact on the oil market. I want you to imagine a scenario in which Iran, which believes, rightfully so, that the Saudis are engaged in economic warfare against them, by keeping prices lower than they otherwise would be. That's what the Iranians believe. That Iran chooses to respond to that in an active way by using its proxies in the region to physically remove supply from the market by attacking infrastructure in Saudi's eastern province, for example. There are all sorts of scenarios that have nothing to do with the normal supply and demand dynamics of a, of a, have nothing to do with the normal you know, profit-driven price mechanism that could send prices spiking and could have, uh, do a lot of damage, not just to our economy, but to the global economy writ large. So that's just something to keep in mind. This isn't just a cold calculus of how much should I produce to make it as much money as possible. And the cold calculus is what, you know, even a regime such as Saudi Arabia has been engaged in for many years. Very, very rational, thinking what's the highest place to which I could push price without pushing my competitors to do something that's going to flood the market with supply and force price down and so on and so forth. And it's very hard to, to hit that exact price point. The other thing is, we heard earlier today... I think a bit of disparagement about competition to oil in the transportation fuel market. And I just want to make a few comments about that. 
If you're a technological optimist, it's very strange to be a technological optimist in certain areas of technology, but not in others. Either you're a technological optimist or you're not. That's one thing. But the second thing is, when we think about competition to oil in the transportation fuel market, it's very um, uh, strange not to think about other hydrocarbons. Because coal and natural gas are fantastic sources of energy, and they're sources of energy from which transportation fuel can be very economically produced. And this is actually an excellent segue into Asia, because the Chinese, unlike us, don't have qualms uh, using coal. And they have drastically expanded their coal to alcohol. In the US, we use ethanol. China uses methanol, so the simplest alcohol, CH3OH. Very economic. Even at today's low oil prices, because of the kind of trapped inland coal that China has, so it's not coal that's getting an international market price, the methanol there per BTU is cheaper than uh, petroleum products, gasoline or diesel, uh, against which it competes. And so you're seeing a very, very um, a different scenario than, than we heard a little bit earlier today when the focus was when thinking about competitors to oil, solely about biofuels or windmills, which of course, remember, if you're talking about electricity generation and using electricity for transportation fuel, the car, just like the, the, this light, doesn't care if that electricity is generated from coal or from nuclear or from wind or from solar. When we talk about sources of electricity generation, these are second order effects. It shouldn't matter at all what that electricity is generated from when we think about using electricity as a substitute for transportation fuel. All we should think about is the economics. And I think one of the things that has happened is these energy issues have become wrapped up in the culture wars. This has been going on for a very, very, very long time. We see that on the left and we see it on the right. So on the left, we see Hillary Clinton saying, you know, if I become president, there are very few areas in which we're going to frack. And Bernie Sanders saying, well, if I become president, we're not going to frack anywhere. <laughs> okay? And on the right, you see, you know, windmills bad and biofuels bad. No. <laughs> you know, let's not get into four legs good, two legs bad thinking. Let's lift regulations. Let's be sensible. If something is economic, let people use it. If it's not economic, people aren't going to use it. And that's kind of the end of my rant <laughs> in response to earlier comments. Let's talk about Asia and the impact of the shale revolution on Asia. And this impact, I think, is counterintuitive, really, because, you know, a few years back, well, let me just say, um, this, this summer in Beijing, uh, June 30th and July 1st, we'll be uh, co-hosting the fifth uh, Global Forum on Energy Security and you all are invited if you'd like to make your way to Beijing. <laughs> but some years back when you were in China, shale was kind of flavor of the month. Remember how hydrogen was flavor of the month here in the States? Fuel cells were flavor of the month. Everything gets a flavor of the month. So, so, so shale was the flavor of the month. Everybody was very, very excited about shale. And this also um, happened during the time when there was huge concern about smog in the city, smogageddon, or you know, people not being able to breathe and so forth. And the solution that was talked about was more natural gas as to displace coal and we'll be able to breathe and all this. It was very politically convenient to talk about it. Fast forward to today. Shale is almost not talked about anymore in China. Why? There are a couple of factors at play. Firstly, Demand for natural gas is just 
not there. So there's a pipe from Turkmenistan, just piped gas. It's not even running at half capacity. Okay. Second, the price mechanism is a big problem because it's not market pricing. The government sets prices, and it sets prices for different users differently. So the price for, let's say, chemical industry is different than the price for utilities, is different than the price for transportation, and so on and so forth. And, and that creates a situation where, the, first of all, the price isn't responsive because it's not a market price, right? So you don't get this normal balancing that happens. But in some ways, the price is too high for demand to increase to where it should. And in another way, the price is too low to stimulate a lot of investment in a shale play. And so you have uh, China not even hitting the targets for natural gas production from shale that it had set in its five-year plan. I mean, far from hitting the targets, very, very far. And it's just kind of almost gone off the agenda in that way. And there's U.S.-China cooperation on shale and so on and so forth. But geologically speaking, the shale plays in China are, 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 are different than in the U.S. They're a lot deeper. They're almost twice as deep. There's a problem with... Um, no access to water. So in the U.S., we're talking about recycling water and so forth, so reusing the water that we used to, to frack, but that doesn't even get on the table if the problem is you don't have the water in the area that you need to frack to begin with. You just don't have the volume of water that you need. So there are all sorts of different issues, and I believe the Chinese are perfectly capable of dealing with these issues. It's, again, a function of is there going to be a... a, a interest in doing that. And right now, I don't really think that the interest is, is there. Now, the other side of the story is, what about U.S. LNG exports? So in Asia, because of Japan, natural gas and oil prices are linked. And what has happened is oil prices fell, so natural gas prices fell, so U.S. LNG is no longer competitive for the Chinese. They have zero reason to import LNG from the U.S., Aside from the fact that the demand really isn't there, but you know they, they just uh, can get it cheaper from elsewhere. There's if they want LNG, they can get it from Australia, they can get it from Qatar, and we're not talking even about increasing the volumes of, of piped gas in existing pipelines or the pipelines that they have agreed to build with other countries, including pipelines with Russia and so forth. So they have a lot of options, and the demand for U.S. gas just isn't isn't there. Um, so, so that's, that's, a, that's another factor. That said, I think there is a lot of room for um, U.S.-China cooperation. You know, cooperation in large part is people talking about cooperating and how good it would be to cooperate. <laughs> and let's meet next year and talk about how fantastic it would be to cooperate. But there, <laughs> that's what a lot of the cooperation, unless it's... <laughs> involves. <laughs> Unless it's, it's highly technical. On highly technical issues, you actually have real, you know, sharing of best practices and real, real progress being made on the real technical stuff, not on the high-level stuff. But on the technical stuff, I think there's, there's room for a lot of cooperation. And I, I just have to just mention briefly this report, Avenues for Collaboration, Recommendations for U.S.-China Transportation Fuel Cooperation, which is, of course, also um, translated uh, into Chinese. But there's, there's a lot of room to collaborate on the more technical side and on kind of whether you're looking at, at, at uh, 
Now, beyond the, the shale story with unconventional gas, if you're looking at uh, coal bed methane, coal mine methane, you know, really across the board, even landfill gas, there's a lot of, of room on the technical side to cooperate, and there's also room to cooperate on something else, which currently this administration is certainly not of interest, but to the Chinese and I think to developing Asia writ large, it's of huge interest because the story in developing Asia when it comes to energy is coal, 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 and coal. It's coal today and it's coal tomorrow and it'll be coal in the foreseeable future. There's a battle going on in the world rhetorically between people that care more about the weather and people that care more about poor people. At the end of the day, and that battle pivots around coal. And if your concern, um, to, whether for regime stability reasons or for reasons of wanting to grow markets around you or for, is to allow people to lift themselves out of poverty and you're in developing Asia, then a huge part of that story is coal. And, you know, that's, that's, that's not something new from an American point of view. Coal is, we think of it as a old, <laughs> Technology, the new day has come, we have unconventional gas, we have all these things that are displacing coal. The, the story in Asia is, is a coal story, it will be a coal story for the long term. Our, what is perceived in Asia as our environmental imperialism of trying to force uh, energy prices in Asia other, higher than they should be by forcing Asia to focus on other technologies and energy resources than they would if their concern was simple economics, I, I think that does a lot of, of damage over the long term to, to the way people see our intentions in the world. So there's a lot more to talk about, but I tried to give you more color and less facts and figures, and maybe Arthur will fix that. Um, that's, that's why I have my little blue cards, <laughs> is to supply that. Um, I want to talk not just about China, I also want to talk about India and Japan. Um, but I want to position this discussion within the, the broad framework that, actually, that, that Bill actually brought up, which is that the problem for Asia, from an energy standpoint, has been that the sources of conventional energy production have simply not been able to keep up with the demand, particularly in the transportation sector. Um, and that this is a, this is a problem that all of the industrialized and industrializing countries in Asia face. And so the question does come up about how does the American shale revolution possibly offer certain kinds of solutions, certain kinds of, whether it's points of cooperation and the technical side, or maybe even just a reconceptualizing of the problem of the issues that are involved and where this could lead uh, the three countries that I've chosen to talk about, but of course it touches on others as well. Uh, looking further on down, the, looking at, uh, across the broader horizon, and also for other emerging industrializing countries, including in Africa, as they think about how do we break through that middle income, that middle income bracket, and become really an emerging, um, developing society. Um, China first, and points out very correctly that. The, the shale revolution that the Chinese thought they were going to be able to get underway uh, and would be able to uh, make them, in a sense, energy independent from a natural gas point of view, hasn't come off. There is a variety of reasons for this. If you would come to our conference uh, that we ran in, was it November or December? 
remind me when our conference on China was. It was November, wasn't it? Yeah, in November, uh, we, had, we had a whole panel discussing why is it that the shale gas revolution hasn't taken off in China. And there's a range of technical issues. There's a range of market issues. The gas crisis is one. The fact that, unlike the United States, that the companies involved in or that would be involved in shale uh, natural gas uh, extraction uh, are basically two, <laughs> as, opposed to, as opposed to dozens, that you have a kind of monopolistic or a duopolistic control over the market, which makes it very difficult to, uh, to, for development to, to take place. Um, you've also got a question of transparency, the fact that where that the shale gas reserves, where they are, the size of them. In the United States, the information is very transparent. It's easy to find on the website uh, at the Energy Information Agency. Uh, in China, it's a state secret. And that makes it hard not just to share with Chinese companies, it also makes it hard to share with foreigners who might be able to give them advice about how to go about shale extraction in the most cost-effective and the most efficient way. Um, so all of these are definitely, definitely challenges and difficulties that they face. But I think another one is perhaps um, in the larger sense of how China sees its own energy map working and how China sees it's the squeeze that's taking place between demand, which even with the current economic slowdown or hiccup or whatever it is, is still going to accelerate, is still going to grow perhaps as much as double, double by 2040, 2050, that the way in which they conceive of it may not be put them on the right track. And for this, I've got two quick slides to pop up. One is a map of China. It's going to stand for a second. So you got it there? Anyway, it's your standard map of China. All recognizable. There it is. And here is the South China Sea and the East China Sea. Scenes of recent rather difficulties and turbulences, some of which have to do with the rich offshore natural gas and oil reserves, which are known to be exist in both of those places here. Um, and you see it, its relationship with its, very, with its neighbors. And, uh, and this is a map that, from the point of view of, let's say, if you're in the Department of Defense or, um, or, or, or one of the undersecretaries of the Navy, this is, a, this is a map which you study quite closely because of the way in which China has, over the last decade and a half, pursued a geopolitical strategy of pushing outward in order to secure more and more uh, of the sort of maritime access for itself here, not just in the South, not just in the China Sea, but also in, in the Indian Ocean and at points beyond, including to the Horn of Africa. The whole, what's called the, 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 the first chain strategy, the first chain of islands of establishing Chinese control there, and then the second chain, all of these things are very much part of the ongoing geopolitical tensions that we have with China right now. But a lot of it springs also from a central fact, a single central fact. And that is that down here, where I've got the white cross, the white X, is the Malacca Strait. The Malacca Strait is the strait through which 70% of China's oil imports have to pass. It is the place at which 
basically the economic destiny of China as an industrialized power is determined. The Malacca Strait is open and secure. China's economic future is secure. If the, if the Malacca Strait is in peril or blocked, China's future economic growth comes under, under is, is, is blocked and in difficulty. And so if you take this same map, which as I say would concern someone from the DOD or someone from thinking about this in terms of what's China's geopolitical strategy, but suppose you look at it from Beijing's point of view and look at it not looking up towards China, but flip it around so it's upside down and you see it from the Chinese point of view looking out and what you come to realize is, is that those open spaces of waters are in fact provide a, a, nothing but a series of choke points, a series of choke points from which China's access both to trade, to energy, to a whole range of goods and services are, can be potentially blocked, can potentially blocked by the United States, the United States in alliance with Japan, with the United States being able to, the, with Malaysia, United States and the Philippines, the South China Sea, the East China Sea, these places look from a Chinese point of view not as flashpoints of aggression, which is how we see it. They see this as securing lifelines, trade lifelines for China for its future, its future direction. But look, set aside that question for a minute, but think about this, looking about this map from an energy point of view, the geopolitics of energy again, and how much of this comes down to and how much of China's current geopolitical strategy is involved in trying to continue to have access to outside sources of energy. Energy from, in the case of oil, from the Middle East. Um, natural gas from Central Asia. Uh, oil ex imports from the United States. You know, since lifting the export ban, China's been one of the customers who's now stepped up to buy in the process. Um, China's whole energy policy is one of trying to find outside sources and secure those outside sources. Uh, whether it's through pipelines or whether it's through trade deals or co-development projects with foreign companies and in foreign countries. The whole current One Belt, One Road strategy, uh, which we have discussed uh, here at both Hudson and also with the Institute for Analysis of Global Security, ANS outfit, um, that whole strategy and the enormous resources that China is now pouring into that, four times in terms of constant dollars, four times the Marshall Plan in this elaborate construction of infrastructure across, across the spreading west into the Middle East and, to, and, hope, and then eventually to Europe, that so much of this infrastructure is about energy and China getting access to, its ener to energy from the outside. And in some ways, this has been a policy, you have to say, that may, perhaps China really needs to seriously rethink. Because in effect, what they've done is, in the pursuit of energy and energy resources, both in oil and natural gas, is they've left a series of hostages of fortune to other countries in which they're pumping their oil or extracting their natural gas. And that the, that the fear, the worry of the Malacca Strait being shut down is simply the, the largest example of how China's vulnerability is built through depending upon resources outside of itself, outside of its own borders. 
And this seems to me a very extraordinary way to pursue a national energy policy, and one which, from a United States point of view, seems really illogical. Because, in a way, our energy security, we've come to realize, depends on developing resources within one's own borders. This is a huge part of it, of the way in which you secure this. And for China, those resources are there. Those resources, the shale resources, for example, the, the estimates for this, or the, uh, for shale uh, reserves for China, it's about 61 trillion cubic meters. That's more than the current reserves for both US and Canada combined. It's a lot harder to get at, that's true, but that's what technology is for. That's what technological innovation is for. Technology innovation such as waterless fracking, for example, which is now coming into the fracking industry. Uh, I know at least two companies who have developed ways in which to use propane instead of water for, uh, for fracking, state, different stages of fracking. Huge difference in terms of where you can then engage in large-scale shale extraction, development and extraction technologies. Um, its own oil and, and its own uh, indigenous oil and natural gas, conventional resources are enormous, China's are. But a lot of the technologies, again, are very old. They go back to the 70s, they go back to the 80s. Um, by reaching out to American companies, for example, China could learn a lot about how you go about um, redeveloping mature fields, Re reservoir management tech practices, which have now become standard and more and more so in the United States, simply as a way to get more out of the resources that you have got. Because with falling prices, it gets more difficult to invest in building, creating new wells and drilling new wells. So you look for what do we get out of, what can we get out of the wells we already have existing here? Uh, and some of us did a calculation that if China were to find a way to uh, extract an extra one million or one and a half million barrels a day from its existing resources, you could look at a massive cut in the number of tankers flowing out of the Middle East into Asia. Huge drop in the demand for Middle East oil that would be sustained by that kind of, that kind of increase in production. Not far-fetched, not, not impossible. Uh, coal. Coal, Anne mentioned, coal to methanol. The Chinese have already launched that as an ongoing program, as a transportation fuel. That's one that could be hugely expanded, both as a way to make more optimal use of coal, so the Chinese don't choke to death in their, in their urban areas, but also as a way, again, to reduce uh, uh, the need for foreign imports of, of petroleum gasoline as a means to, which, to keep the transportation sector growing uh, and to keep it, keep it, on the, keep it able to, to meet the sort of future demand in terms of automobiles, in terms of transportation, China's going to face in the future. So China's answers to a lot of its both, I think, geopolitical tensions with its neighbors and also to its future economic growth lies beneath its feet. It's there. It's waiting. It just needs the kinds of technology and the foreign uh, I'm afraid foreign investment help that would enable them to, to bring this about and to bring this connection together. Same is true for India. India, huge coal reserves, which again could be used for coal to methanol conversion for transportation fuel. Also very large shale natural gas reserves. Very large shale natural gas reserves. Um, 
which uh, and the the estimates vary because it is still kind of unknown territory. Just how large it could be. I've heard estimates as high as 61 trillion cubic meters to one private company that says it could be as much as 2,000, 2,000 trillion cubic meters. That's a lot of natural gas. Again, uh, extraction practices and difficulties that go with that. It's not like American shale, but that's the whole point about technological innovation. You adjust to the conditions, you adjust to the circumstances. Under which you under which you function, and U.S. shale producers could bring enormous expertise and experience to the process of making India increasingly energy independent from the point of view of natural gas and less dependent on things such as the pipeline that's now currently being built through Pakistan as a means to get access to natural gas from Central Asia. Gosh. How about that? Interest your, your, your worst enemy with control over that lifeline. Um, there are alternatives for India that face. The last one I'll mention is Japan. Uh, Japan, also massive importer of foreign oil, from, especially from the Middle East. In fact, between the two of them, China and Japan, is what kept Iran alive during the whole sanctions regime that was imposed over the last decade and a half because both China and Japan got exemptions from the, from the, uh, from the sanctions uh, and, and oil, oil uh, import uh, bans that have been placed on this because their economies couldn't survive without it and couldn't, wouldn't be able to, to function without it. Japan's third largest oil consumer, second biggest importer. 82% from the Middle East. There's your facts and figures. for That's a lot. And it's one, by the way, which the Japanese now are very nervous about, especially with Iran coming back online, the problems that will come with that. Very nervous about that. Very nervous also, I should point out too, very nervous about the fact that the other place they've now been looking to supplement that is through the spot market, which means buying from Russia. And they're not very happy about that situation. But again, they're stuck in a, in a difficult dilemma. How can the U.S. share revolution help with this? Two ways. One would be by buying more oil from the United States. And I think this is one of the things that the United States could, could look to and encourage. We have a presidential candidate, a certain presidential candidate. He's been talking about the unfair trade practices with regard to Japan and unfair trade, trade deals. Well, bilateral trade deals involving oil exports to Japan from the United States could be one way to correct that trade deficit and a way in which to change the dynamics. The second one that I'll mention is methane hydrates. Now, some people in this room have mentioned of methane hydrates will roll their eyes and say, oh my God, not methane hydrates again. Methane hydrates, by the way, is a, is a, is a peculiar form of frozen natural gas. The natural gas molecules are in a frozen state, which enables them to compact in extraordinary kinds of ways. In fact, a one cubic foot of methane hydrate contains 5,800 cubic feet of natural gas. It's a lot of natural gas. Japan, as one of the largest and most easily accessible re reserves of methane hydrates off its shores. The problem is the commercial extraction process is, doesn't exist yet. The Japanese have set up an entire agency within their, uh, within their agency on industry, science, and technology to work on this because they realize this could be a huge breakthrough for them. 
that they figure if they could tap into those natural gas reserves, they'd be looking at enough natural gas to supply all of Japan's needs for 100 years. That's a nice, that's a tempting target to aim for. But it's the technology. The technology problems are, they're not insuperable, but they're very, very difficult. But this is the whole story about the American shale revolution is about technology. And the things that were considered impossible to do before and impossible to even conceive of now become doable. During our China conference, David Sandilow from Harvard had an interesting story. He pointed out that the first major shale gas strike in the United States, done by George Mitchell, took place 20 miles from ExxonMobil's corporate headquarters. At that time, ExxonMobil was looking for natural gas in Angola. It was literally at their, almost literally outside their front door. This is what technology can, can do. And what American technology in the, that, that's triggered and will extend the shale revolution will do, I think, to not only bring the possibility of, of, of energy independence, energy security at least, to our friends in Asia, but also could work to ease geopolitical tensions with a country like China is enormous. And I think it's one of the areas that, uh, that, 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 in terms of thinking about this in a geopolitical sense, a lot of time and attention needs to be devoted to it. I'm done. That's great. I, I get to ask the first question. So thinking about what you were just saying about Japan and understanding how oil and gas is priced in that marketplace, and remembering what you just said about China having all these resources right below their feet, I have to give Anne a chance to respond to that in terms of the Chinese and how they organize themselves to do that and whether or not you think they have the capacity to do that. If the Chinese can do anything they set their mind on doing. The question is, is there an internal incentive to do it or not? And right now for Shale, for the reasons that we talked about, there just isn't that that internal incentive. I mean, if you look at the, the it's true that that even though we talk about this, the, the, the slowing down of China, it's not actually slowing down. It's just the growth is slowing down. So <laughs> the, 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 but still, if you project forward, and of course we know what these projections are, are worth, but if you project forward, you still see that the so-called optimistic projections of the Chinese government, natural gas is still a small overall share of their energy pie going forward. And of that share, shale is quite a small, uh, a smaller portion. And in terms of what they've really been able to accomplish with shale, it's even smaller than that. And I don't think it's because they lack the technological capacity. They're not, look, we talk about natural gas vehicles, for example. China has 10 times as many natural gas vehicles as we do. They have thousands of natural gas stations. Now, granted, the technology that they're using is less safe than the technology that is, is more common in the developed world, and therefore it costs a tenth as much. Granted. But they, they don't need, um, they're not waiting for us to, to get the shale train moving. It's just that if the pricing is not right and the demand isn't there and you're a state-owned enterprise and at the end of the day, companies, government-controlled companies are comprised of people for which there's a cost of making a wrong decision and it's not, it's, it's a big cost. It's a personal cost. So if you make a bet and you made the wrong bet, 
And it's not the same decision that people were making all along, so you were perfectly justified in taking that decision, but it's something different. That could have a serious personal cost for you. You know, and, and not every culture celebrates failure and says if you fail 10 times, the 11th time you're going to be a real success. No, this is a big issue. This is a big issue. If the cost for failures is too high institutionally, that makes you more risk averse. And that affects the way you decide to allocate capital. And like you said, you're not talking about potentially thousands or even hundreds or even tens of players here. You're talking about a small number of players, which means a small number of people, which means the, the decision-making is very much government-driven. And the, 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 it, it's not the way that we operate here. No, and then, of course, also the other issue, the other major insuperable obstacle, personal, will be private property rights, which are so important for triggering the shale revolution here or anywhere else that it takes place. Um, I think, I, I still think that, that, the, that, the, that shale represents, and the government did appreciate it. I mean, they had, as you know, mm -hmm. they had their sights set on that, and then when it didn't really come about as quickly as they had thought, they, it dropped out as a as a uh, as a national priority, or slid. I should say. Slid. Slid. Out. Slid is a national priority. Um, but I think that the I, I think in the end the real solution to this problem is going to come when they turn to direct foreign investment, and they're going to have to change the way in which they think about the energy markets that way. That there is much more much more advantage to having Chevron, ConocoPhillips, Continental Resources drilling and working on shale gas in China or in Sichuan province or in Xinjiang than it is having to spend all of those billions on infrastructure in Iran, in Libya, in, uh, in West Africa. You would think by now the Chinese will learn their lesson in that process. There, there are a couple issues that come into play there. Okay, one, and this is very, very true for American and European companies and Japanese companies, in other areas as well, working in China is the intellectual property issue. This is a big deal. It's a big deal. And when you have to have a Chinese partner on a project, and that means that maybe you do a project once and then you're not needed anymore, right. this is a, it's a problem. It, it makes... But that's a government policy it's, problem. It's not a resources or the, the overall shape of the... It's a how do you treat economy. intellectual property... There might be a question. As we know, the Chinese don't have a really good track record with that. <laughs> that I, I know I, that. Yeah, I definitely know that. There might be a cross-border solution to that problem. Um, I'm not going to elaborate on that, but um, these cultural conferences back and forth about how we cooperate could actually produce some result eventually. And it could be along those lines, in my opinion. Uh, but You've heard both sides of the argument, essentially, that um, the country itself and the way that it's organized and the way that it does business and, and is, um, is significantly different from who we are and, and the environment that we created to allow this industry to develop. So with that, I am going to ask if there's anybody else who would like to ask questions to to Anne and Arthur, um, and if you do, please please state your name and uh, let them know who you are when you begin. I'm Linda Veblen. I'm interested in knowing whether or not an internal incentive for the Chinese might be the population's disaffection with smog. <laughs> well, 
This, the, the smog, uh, air pollution, air quality. You know, in the U.S., in the developed world, when people, they, they, let's say the environmental organizations or the environmental lobby have stopped thinking about clean air and clean water and are focused on the weather, okay? In China, the environmental issue is breathing clean air and drinking water that's clean and eating food that's not poisoned. These are real issues, and the Chinese government is very concerned about it because they can destabilize the regime. These are... The air quality issue is, is an issue that the Chinese really give very high priority to, not just lip service. And counterintuitively, that's where transportation fuel for coal has come in in China. It's completely counterintuitive. But when you make transportation fuel from coal, especially alcohol from coal, you're cleaning up the air. If you look at your, uh, counterintuitive, right? <laughs> that's because the CO2 emissions are higher. But if you think about the way that you make uh, alcohol from coal, you're taking the coal, you're gasifying it, you're making it into a synthesis gas, which is a very pure stream of carbon monoxide and hydrogen, all the stuff that you're normally concerned about, the sulfur, the particulates, they aren't going up a smokestack. And then you take that synthesis gas and convert it into a, uh, you catalyze it into a liquid fuel. It's a very clean process. And the fuel, take alcohol and burn it, whatever alcohol, it, there's no particulate emissions, right? So the particulates will be because it's mixed in with hydro, with, 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 with petroleum products, with diesel or with gasoline, but not from the alcohol itself. So it's much, much cleaner. That's, that's why if you go to Beijing, you see, for example, that every moped, every motorcycle is electric. There are millions of electric vehicles in China, millions. Two-wheel. Two that's why when, I, I believe the next big thing, if you look at non-petroleum transportation fuel in China, is the heavy-duty sector. And they're working on this very hard. It's moving alcohol fuel into a heavy-duty sector. Big trucks, buses, but especially big trucks. Because the, the diesel emissions are very bad. And I think another big potential is for the inland shipping. These are things that really impact the air quality. So it doesn't have to, yes, they're doing a lot more natural gas and transportation, as I said, than we are. Interestingly, in the U.S., you know, we have huge potential to do alcohol from natural gas. The Chinese coal industry saw that and said they've managed to pass a regulation that makes it illegal to use uh, alcohol, specifically methanol, made from natural gas in the transportation fuel market in China. Yes. <laughs> So things don't always work the way you'd expect them to work. So it's definitely true that the air quality is a huge The results you get are, are maybe counterintuitive from an American point of view because they look practically and they say coal from coal, fuel from coal is clean. From an air quality perspective, it's clean fuel. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Sam Miranda. I'm a retired nuclear engineer. And uh, I was uh, wondering if you could say a few words about um, China building nuclear plants. I understand they have more than 27 in, under construction now. And uh, I, like, I like your um, earlier concept about uh, electricity. No one cares where it comes from. You, if you use it for transportation, it, uh, it, uh, it could come from coal, oil, or, or nuclear. So... Um, so could you uh, <clears throat> explain uh, what uh, China's plan is for nuclear power? Because they're building a lot more plants than anyone else. Sure. I mean, the U.S. really has relinquished leadership um, in the nuclear industry um, because we didn't really build anything for such a long time. That means that a lot of um, 
experience. At the end of the day, leadership in an industry comes down to the human factor. Technological development and maintenance of you know, institutional knowledge. And that institutional knowledge isn't stuck in hard drives and in pieces of paper. A lot of it is in people's brains. And when people retire and you lose these people, you've lost an almost irreplaceable asset. And that's a lot of what has happened in the nuclear industry in the US. So other countries, including China and Russia, are really at the forefront of the global nuclear industry, both because China is doing a lot internally um, with nuclear power. Um, and also, the, it's becoming an export industry for China as well. Mm -hmm. uh, as part of this larger infrastructure reach out, uh, outreach of trying to find ways to provide infrastructure, whether you're talking about high-speed trains or whether you're talking about uh, natural gas pipelines or, or harbors or nuclear power plants. And I think this is one of the things that one has to worry about a little bit. I mean, for the Chinese to build their own nuclear reactors makes a lot of sense. I understand it. Good luck to you and all that. But I think there's a lot of worry about Chinese-designed nuclear reactors becoming, starting to dot the countryside in places like France and like Britain. And as you may know, there was a recent stink about just this issue of a, of a, a French company partnering with China Chinese company in the construction of a nuclear reactor and who was going to do the specifications and who was going to handle the safety factors and things like this. And a lot of worry that maybe the Chinese would not be so careful about this and how this kind of thing takes place. I have to agree wholeheartedly with Anne on this one. It's because the US renounced leadership on the nuclear front. We got so locked into the China syndrome, pardon the expression, the China syndrome mentality about nuclear power that basically we let three decades, three decades of technology and expertise uh, and experience to sort of drop away and it became you know, the, the thing that we didn't want to, that, that, that somehow we were going to achieve clean energy <laughs> and move beyond fossil fuels, but not go with the nuclear path. This was the way in which this was, uh, th this was framed up. And it's turned out to be, turned out to be a very bad, bad energy policy, but maybe also good, very bad national security policy for so many ways. We had uh, Bud McFarlane, former national security advisor, raise that issue about US leadership with regard to for example, handling of fuels and, and the processing here. Again, U.S. missing in action on this. And I think for China to turn to nuclear power for its own energy needs makes sense. For uh, China, to allow China now to become, turn nuclear, building nuclear power plants into an export industry doesn't, at least from the point of view of our own national interest. That's my view. So is your view to allow more questions, or are we going to this down? <laughs> well, I th do we have do we have we have time for a couple more, and then we can move on to the next uh, to the next panel. Uh, Ken Byerhart again. Uh, we've been talking about, about oil and shale and new technology, but we haven't mentioned one resource um, that was very much talked about in the early '70s when our uh, domestic oil production peaked and, and the Arab embar oil embargo, we were told there was enough of this resource in Wyoming to last us for generations. I'm talking about not shale oil, but oil shale, shale. Right. Um, which is, I'll let you all explain the difference. <laughs> but I wonder if, what, are, is there any development in this regard as far as making it economically feasible to extract this oil from the oil shale? And how does China stand in terms of this resource? 
Now, I can't speak to China, but I can tell you one place where that technology is being tested and is underway right now is where's our Middle East panel is in the Golan Heights. The, uh, the oil discovery that's taken place there and the work that's being done is with oil shale, which is different than shale oil. It's a, it's, it's a geologically different, it's a different area level of maturation of the, of, the, of, of the fossil fuel in the process. You're right, it is much more difficult to drive, but not impossible. Uh, and in fact, it may be very, maybe surprisingly technically feasible uh, at, at costs that are competitive with that. Um, the, Except nobody in their right mind would want to invest in an area that's internationally... Well, that is an interesting question, what happens with the Golan. And I think my own view is right now, after having talked to Israeli officials on this, as well as in the industry, is, is that the Golan is now Israel. Um, and that the chances of it ever going back to Syria, particularly under the current circumstances, are nil. I agree with that. But think how easy it is to bombard the Golan Heights. Uh, Hezbollah is sitting right across the border. I mean, they can see everything. It's basically as if, you know, you're, you're, you're investing in an area that's very geographically small and completely open to uh, very easy and repeated attacks over the years. It would be, um, and I know the Israelis feel have... The combustible materials. Combustible materials. <laughs> well, in the case of, case of oil shale, probably less, less combustible. Less but... so in that standpoint. Um, but the, the possibilities from a technological point of view, we'll go back to your question with regard to oil shale reserves here, which are enormous, particularly, you mentioned Wyoming, but in Colorado, the Green River Basin, it's enormous, enormous oil shale. Uh, resources that the technological developments that could come come through on this uh, could be that could be the next generation of American unconventional oil production in this way. I mean, the technologies are changing so quickly. We're so in the infancy with regard to fracking technologies, from everything from the use of big data by means by which to to look for the best possible sites, the use of seismic uh, si deep seismic testing, the use of development, things like waterless fracking, it's still in the infancy. And things that would have seemed unimaginable even right now, methane hydrates, for example, could be, uh, could be enormous. And the last thing I'll say on that point is that just as in China's case, coal reserves could be a solution to transportation fuel needs, so for Japan, methane hydrate into methane hydrates to natural gas to ethanol and methanol could be an important breakthrough for them in terms of transportation fuel as well. And it's one the Japanese should really think about as they think about their own vulnerability to Middle East oil and the, and, and the, 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 the tensions that can become, that, that can flare up at any time there as well. And you know what? In our country here, if we open up our cars to fuels made from natural gas and the real story of the shale revolution affecting the oil market over the long term could actually be the natural gas story. Because natural gas, even today on a BTU basis, is so much cheaper than oil. And liquid fuel from natural gas is just like liquid fuel made from oil. Most of the cost is in the in input, not in the process itself. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's absolutely right. And that, that's, I think, with the next, that's the second wave of the, of, of the shale revolution will be the, the transition to, uh, 
to, to the natural gas, including as trans, a major transportation fuel. Thank you very much, Arthur and Ann. Just remember, Thank you. You might, you might be a fossil fuel one day yourself.